Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. There are three fantastic stories on this podcast for you. Two recorded in Port Stewart on the theme I Remember When and one from the archives from the dark days of 10 by Zoom. One of these visitors was a distant, entitled relative, Great Uncle Aubrey, who led an eccentric lifestyle. When did you make these, I asked. A few weeks ago, she said, still smiling broadly herself. So, my husband finally changed his underwear after 21 years of marriage this month. So, get ready for Great Uncle Aubrey, some mouldy old dough, and the beginnings of a love affair. First up, we go to Port Stewart and Flowerfield Arts Centre for a lovely evening by the sea. The theme was I Remember When, and here's a first-timer to start us off. Say hello to Alwyn Minford. I remember when it all started. My career, that is. The happy rhythm of my early life was rudely interrupted by the need to go to the local primary school at four years of age. I doubt there would have been much psychological preparation for this event. So to say it came as something of a shock would be an understatement. As the large grey car crept up to the school gate, I stood frozen on the front bench seat next to my mother. I was filled with a horrible, doomed feeling. Once inside the schoolroom, I was convinced this was not for me. I was quite happy at home with my mother on the farm. I had no need of this foreign state of affairs. This intuitive knee-jerk reaction led to my release. And I was landed home, much to my great delight and my mother's embarrassment. Unfortunately, my reprieve didn't last long. The next day, I was back. My lovely teacher, who must have been very experienced in these matters, met me warmly and siphoned me off into the store with the art materials. I was left to play with all these goodies. This was more like it, more what I had in mind. I was under the impression that this was where I might stay and not have to engage with the hard stuff of schoolwork. Alas, again, I was mistaken and gently restored to the classroom. By now, it was sinking in that I didn't have a choice in the matter. I duly aligned myself. My distaste for school, nevertheless, lasted for the duration of my school career until I was 18. I felt like a square peg in a round hole It was not a natural fit. My initial career path was influenced at a very early age. Even though my mother had been a nurse and had a desire that I would follow in her footsteps, I know I made my own decision. The reason that I know this is because of an event that took place in our home one Christmas. Christmas was always a very busy time with a constant flow of visitors and an ample supply of gorgeous food. My father and mother were very sociable beings, and they liked to include anyone who was on their own in our celebrations. This often led to no room in the sofa and standing room in the living room. 
As a child, I wondered who these people were and why they needed to be there. Now it makes total sense and seems like the kindest act in the world. One of these visitors was a distant, entitled relative, Great Uncle Aubrey, a very learned, erudite gentleman who led an eccentric lifestyle. He was a traveller of some kind and spoke fluent French. He lived about three miles from us, down a lane in a small shack of a cottage with an outdoor toilet. At night, he peed into an enamel bucket with a blue strip to save him from going out into the cold. He took up residence on the beige-pink sofa and gave forth on many subjects. He smoked Gallagher's Blue cigarettes with the highest nicotine content possible. Perhaps he was imagining he was in a Parisian cafe and the cigarettes were gauloise because his smoking style became the centre of our attention as children. He smoked and smoked and allowed the fag ash to accumulate so that it would hang perilously on a cliff edge. Then if he didn't rescue it, which he often didn't, it would drop off and hit the sofa or the carpet, singeing a hole as it landed. Our game was to see if we could catch the fag ash before it landed by rushing in with an ash tray under his chin. Great Uncle Aubrey was not amused. One year this poor gentleman suffered a collapse of some kind and had to be taken from the overloaded Christmas table to the comfort of my aunt's cosy bed. My mother, being a bit of a Florence Nightingale, decided he needed to stay with us to repair. My auntie, who lived with us, didn't seem to have any say in the matter and was evicted from her bedroom. She had no idea at this point she was losing her bed to Great Uncle Aubrey for the next three months. The caring routine became quickly established. My intimate acquaintance with the art of bedbathing began at the age of six. My mother would prepare a tray each morning with a bowl of warm water, shaving foam, a razor, face cloth and a towel. I watched so carefully as she lathered up the old man's face and shaved him into the bowl. Then she changed the water. He was able to wash off the remains of the soap with the soft cloth and pat dry with the towel. His hair was freshly combed and pyjamas changed if required. Great Uncle Aubrey lapped up all the attention and everything went very well until his increasing health made him more demanding. My mother sensed this and was cooling off in the rigours of her service. One day she was called away somewhere. A vacancy arose. All my weeks of observation had paid off. I knew what to do. Filled with purpose and on a mission, I prepared the tray and arrived in front of Great Uncle Aubrey to perform the daily ablutions. I announced that I would be shaving him. And the surprising thing is he actually let me. So expectant was he of attention that he didn't really care who the operator was. I was making headway and had a feeling of immeasurable satisfaction and growing pride in accomplishing the task of caring for my first patient. This lasted until my mother barged in, horrified at the scene unfolding before her, and forced my actions to cease. Too late, though. 
as the deed was done and the seeds of a future career in nursing were well and truly sown. Great Uncle Aubrey was soon mended and on his way. He bought my mother a brown paper bag of very green Granny Smith apples for her trouble. Another career-influencing event took place during a summer holiday at my cousin's pig farm when I was 14. One of the sows was farrowing. Much to my delight, my uncle invited us to keep him company in the all-night vigil in the pig shed. Watching the sow grunt and heave for hours, I was transfixed when the first of the litter of piglets shot and slithered to life on the straw-covered floor. There was a visceral impact. I was galvanised by what was unfolding. My squeamish cousin, on the other hand, was perched on the concrete wall, swinging her legs and concentrating on keeping a safe distance. Imagine the overwhelming thrill when my uncle beckoned to me to come and deliver the final piglet. My heart was in my mouth. The piglet arrived as if coming down a chute in a whoosh of clear liquid. With the mucus cleared from its mouth, it was placed under the warm lamp. I took the umbilical cord between my hands and divided it with my nails, separating the tiny pink infant from its mother. The warm, sticky blood flowed over my hands. I felt a glow of pride in handling the delivery of the 14th piglet that night. The story does not end there. Back at school in September, we were predictably tasked with writing an essay on my summer holiday. Naturally, the birth of the piglet was carved in my mind like an Aboriginal painting at Irish Rock. I still remember the red-hot sheer embarrassment of being asked by the teacher to stand up and read out the story, midwife to a sow. I wished the ground would open up and swallow me whole. I went on to survive the scalding lava of shame caused by the exposure. And the rest, they, as they say, is history. The pig house events on that sultry summer's evening further cemented the direction I would go in by choosing to become a nurse. I still today have the exercise book, the story in it. Thanks so much, Alwyn. What a great initiation into the world of nursing. I do hope you'll be back with us soon with more stories. We're always looking for new storytellers at 10x9, so if you'd like to tell your story, but like Alwyn, you're a little nervous or shy, then get in touch at the 10x9 website and I'll do my best to make it easy for you. Okay, let's get on to our second story, and we're staying in Port Stewart, and it's another first-timer. Here's Shane Laverty. I remember when a wee girl came up to me in the canteen one day. She sniffed and sneezed, a quick back of the hand wipe. Looking up with big brown eyes and an eager smile, she held out her hand. In the middle of her palm was an iced bun, a kind of fairy cake type of thing. The icing had run off slightly to one side, but it looked, well, quite bun-like, actually. Would you like a bun, sir? 
I was a little apprehensive, yet delighted with this kind gesture, as it was made with sincerity, and I was the only one being offered a bun in the assembled company of teachers and classroom support staff huddled around the canteen staff table. You see, these little gestures are what teachers really love because it reflects a certain popularity amongst the children. Kudos. Coy glances towards the staff and a little self-indulgent chuckle. Well, thank you so much, Emily. This is a lovely gesture. I somehow felt special in that moment. I was the chosen one. The subject for Emily's random act of kindness, which I had so often encouraged in school assemblies. When did you make these, I asked, to keep the conversation going as I smiled a little smugly towards the staff at the table. A few weeks ago, <laughs> she said, still smiling broadly herself, and obviously feeling very satisfied that the headmaster was considering her meager offering. I hoped she hadn't noticed me gulp at the potential culinary disaster that lay ahead. I knew my limitations and I wasn't good at moldy old dough. Like the iceberg waiting for Titanic, I thought. A few weeks ago, I stammered. Laughing nervously, I glanced at staff, now trying to control their heaving guffaws and giant belly laughs. I scanned the bun for signs. I remembered Dougal in Father Ted. It was either small or far away. On this occasion, it was both, as I strained and squinted. Too small and too far away to make out whether the icing was off color by design or decay. I gently squeezed it as I spoke, all the while trying to stay positively engaged with the proud little girl. Squeeze test inconclusive, I thought. Was that something moving or just a loose crumb? Um, where have you kept it for a few weeks? In the Quality Street tin, she said, through smiling white teeth, waiting expectantly for my first forage into what I now felt could be a dodgy little fairy cake. Quality Street tin. My mind cascaded backwards as I remembered the day my sister Jane offered Aunt Peggy and Mrs. Dunlop a piece of Ma's Christmas shortbread from the Quality Street tin. That was some tin, a big white two-pound quality street tin. Shrinkflation, I thought. It was now the month of May, and I remembered it was Muchti. Mrs. Dunlop's face was like a bulldog chewing a wasp, and Aunt Peggy might as well have swallowed a wet tissue as she headed like a blue bottle for the bathroom. Ma was affronted, and Jane was scunnered, because there was fresh shortbread on the wire rack in the scullery. Emily waited expectantly. Is that a little blue fur around the icing, I thought, as my mind was imagining the journey of the bun? Probably in the school bag for the last fortnight, or worse still, in the lunchbox getting all sweated up over half term. I imagined the many little fingers that may have perused this pastry in preparation for its journey to my unsuspecting, until five minutes ago, palate. 
Who has raised it lipwards, only to reject and replace it at the last gasp, literally breathing the latest version of cold and flu virus, itself inoculated so that it can reap its sickly dividend upon my person? Eyes flitting to eagerly awaiting staff, themselves now unashamedly basking in the glory of my predicament with suppressed convulsions. I can't let the wee soul down, I thought. I gulp and hold my breath as I plunge my teeth through the rocky, vulcanized icing and into the mantle. Then onward to the outer and then inner core. Taste buds are furiously trying to send signals to my brain. Aversion, moldy, muchty, stuch, abort this mouthful, get rid. But I just couldn't spit it out. I'm the boss. I'm the one who always blurts on about manners and kindness and giving. She has shown it all in her little gesture. I swallow against all the odds, overcoming the natural propensity to gag a little. I'm not a celebrity, so why am I here, I thought. Hey, that wasn't so bad. It's done and dusted, and I managed to gurgle out a thank you that was lovely, Emily Eccles, and you have a perfect name for making buns. Her eyes light up and her smile broadens. Turning towards me again, she holds out her hand. Would you like another bun, sir? <laughs> Staff exit left and right. I'm literally tongue-tied, taste negative. I think fast. Miss... Miss, sir? Emily looked puzzled. Yes, Miss deserves one. Emily, try the office. There are three of them there. I'm sure Miss will be thrilled by your fairy bun. Oh dear, what's happening over there in the playground? Headmaster exits right. A near Miss isn't always that bad after all, I mused. Oh, that sweet little girl. Thanks so much, Shane. That was great. And what a debut. Come again soon. I'll bring the buns. As you know, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who's donated via Patreon or over the years has given at the live event via Story Pig, our big China piggy bank. It's really appreciated and helps keep us going. Okay, on to our third and final story in this podcast, and it's a blast from the past. Long story short, I had to email one of our Zoom regulars in Scotland this week, and it reminded me there were some of her stories from lockdown days which hadn't featured on the podcast. She's a brilliant storyteller. Here's the amazing Gita Meaton. So, my husband finally changed his underwear after 21 years of marriage this month. I mean, he's not completely disgusting. He has changed his pants almost every day of those 21 years. But each pair has borne a striking resemblance to the briefs his mother bought him after he left nappies behind. The other week, he suddenly announced that he was going to try boxer shorts and came back from the shop with a six pack of tartan undies, which he modelled with great pride and the slightly strange announcement that his nether regions had never felt more free. So after 21 years of me trying very hard not to make eye contact with those hated black briefs, a whole new era has arrived. 
And you might wonder where this is going and what it has to do with peace. And I promise there is a connection because you see, I'm not a very peaceful person. I once spent a day in supposed retreat and meditation where I clenched my teeth so hard with the effort of trying to be still that my jaw hurt for days. I have a dream of myself dressed in serene white linen, writing beautiful prose in the perfect moleskin journal, but instead I'm likely to be found in a crumpled t-shirt with my cardigan on inside out burning soup while typing distractedly into my phone. Luckily, I had the sense to fall in love with a very peaceful person indeed. A dear friend who knows us both well has described him as the steady drumbeat to my mad improvisation, and she's not wrong. This is the guy who left the replacement caravan windows on the dining table for two months because he just stopped noticing them, or whose response to most of the COVID-19 stuff has genuinely been to refuse to let any of it in to trouble his peace. And that actually works 90% of the time. He's not an idiot. He just has a superb ability to protect his own equilibrium. We met when I was a teenager, when through a complicated set of connections, his group of English teenagers and my group of Scottish ones formed a bond across the border. The English boys would make the trip up to Scotland, piling into their beaten up vehicles with hiking boots, tents and rucksacks to climb our superior mountains and meet some superior girls. My parents, God bless them, had a large living room with space for four or five lads to unroll their sleeping bags on the floor and a relaxed attitude to having kit drying on the banisters. The disadvantages for them, a shortage of hot water and the stench of wet tent lingering for days, were outweighed for me at least by the opportunity to be part of a whole new social set of boys I hadn't grown up with and who'd never known me in my braces and acne phase. I pretended to love climbing Monroe's and camping out on the side of lochs well enough that I fitted right in. We were an intense bunch. They were charismatic Pentecostals from a church that prayed in tongues and had supernatural experiences. And we were good Scottish Presbyterians who were in equal parts terrified and intrigued, like kids entering a haunted house. Charlie was six foot three and had to remove the driver's seat of his yellow vintage Mini Cooper and sit on the back seat to drive it. Chris once made us eat nothing but Burger Kings and Kit Kats for a whole weekend as he'd managed to game some kind of offer on the label of the biscuits and get us free cheeseburgers. Ben had stories of partying hard in Liverpool and nights in the cells before finding Jesus. And Andy, well, he was the quietest and most normal of them all. At their church meetings, we'd start with an hour of freeform worship, the total opposite of our well-regulated hymns and psalms with our black-suited elders in the front seats. People would cry and shake and sometimes they'd lie full length on the floor. The singing was passionate, the fervour impressive, and I was mostly freaked out. And here's where Andy's peacefulness started to make an impression. My initial sense of him had been that compared to Chris, Charlie and Ben, he rather faded into the background of all the drama. And in fact, when we first met, I thought he was really boring. It's fine, he thought I was a bit of a snob and a bit aloof. He was a man of few words, but when he did speak, he was gentle and funny. He had good strong hands and just the right amount of blonde hair on his tanned muscular arms from a summer of gardening work. 
His curly hair, now sadly long gone, was in a centre parted 90s curtain style. And I find myself during those scary church meetings drawn to his calm. I felt like if I could just stand or sit beside him, nothing too freakish could happen. He was steady and his spirit seemed to be at ease. So in the years that followed, there were more road trips and more mountains climbed. And I started to feel as though I didn't want to sit beside anyone else. He was just good at being himself. And that self was profoundly peaceful. He made me laugh and he made me feel safe. And I was calmer in his company and even started to believe that I could wear linen trousers. The problem was he was so peaceful that he often didn't notice quite what was going on around him. And my flirting skills, which I've described in a previous story, were proving decidedly ineffective this time round. Four of us planned a summer's trip to France and we spent the week on beaches buying bread and cheese from tiny shops with our embarrassing high school French and waking up early to Ben praying fervently and loudly at about 6am. We get it, Ben, you love Jesus, just keep the volume down before breakfast. Andy and I stood side by side at the standpipe, brushing our teeth companionably like old married couple. And I thought, I think I want to be an old married couple with this one. There was a snag though. He was so busy swimming in his inner pool of tranquility that we might actually be dead before he made the first move. I was going to have to take the initiative. On our last night in Brittany, we sat round the fire pit with local cider and Calvados on the go and the stars out above our heads. After the ferry home, I was going back to Glasgow and he was going back to Blackpool to finish his illustration course. And it felt, and that might just have been the cider, that this was my one big chance. So I asked if he wanted to go for a walk. And when we were far enough away from the others, I nervously blurted out that I was wondering if we were perhaps more than just friends. It was excruciating. He said nothing at all for a few minutes and then awkwardly reached over and shook my hand. I blinked a few times and then we walked back to the fire. That was a long ferry home, <laughs> I can tell you. And for weeks I heard precisely nothing at all. These were the days before mobile phones and there was no quick text or WhatsApp to say hello, no emoji to cover the emotional fallout of my confession of love, just silence. I've since found out that he had been so stunned by my revelation, so taken aback that I liked him, that he'd run out of words. And he was also apparently too scared to give me a hug in case I took it the wrong way and jumped on him or something. Um, the peaceful pool of tranquility of things being the way they had always been was in danger of things of being troubled. And his response was to paddle his wee brain right out into the middle of it and just chill out for a month. While I sat in my room, mortified and despondent, listening to Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. on repeat, or Alanis Morissette and Tori Amos if I was feeling slightly more aggrieved. It makes complete sense to me now that the whole proposition came out of left field for him, that it was too much disturbance of the peace, and that he needed a good 28 days to consider his next move. We worked it out in the end. And if I could go back in time, I'd probably have sent him a letter or broken the news of my ardour in smaller, less threatening stages. 
I know now that a man so intent on safeguarding his peacefulness that he takes 40 years to even consider a different type of underwear wasn't ever going to be able to process a declaration of love from me in a hurry. Gita, it was so lovely to hear your voice again and to remember the humour and joy you brought during those awful times. Thank you so much. And that's it for this podcast. Check out all the 2024 dates on our website. I can't believe I'm planning so far ahead. And mark them in your diaries. Be sure to keep tabs with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for any updates. Thanks to everyone who makes 10 by 9 happen. The fabulous Leanne McConville, Margaret McClory and Chris O'Donoghue. There would be no 10 by 9 without them. Thanks of course to the beautiful people of the Black Box and Flower Field and our amazing supportive audiences everywhere. Thanks to all our brilliant storytellers who continually offer us wonderful glimpses into their lives. We are truly grateful. But the biggest thanks this week goes to Alwyn Minford, Shane Laverty and Gita Meaton. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye. <laughs>